Hello, this is Aline from Less Than or Equal. There are a couple of things I wanted to address before the regularly scheduled podcast begins. In light of Robin Williams' death last week, I wanted to say that I know there are a lot of people listening who suffer from depression, bipolar, and other disorders, or who know someone who does. These disorders are nobody's fault, and if you need help, please seek it out. Talk to your medical professional. If you need help because of suicidal thoughts, please go to suicide.org to find a hotline in your country. If you or someone you care about is currently in danger of committing suicide, please call your local emergency number immediately. Secondly, I wanted to address what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri. I'm recording this at 11.45 p.m. Pacific Time on Sunday, August 17th. Eight days ago, a teenager named Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer. Things have been unbelievably crazy in Ferguson ever since. Tonight, children were exposed to tear gas by the police, and the media was threatened with arrest just for being there. I understand that this is most definitely a topic of societal inequality and it needs to be discussed. However, I'm going to need help to make sure that Less Than or Equal addresses the issue appropriately. If you know of someone who might want to be a guest on Less Than or Equal to discuss what's been happening in Ferguson, please let me know. Now, on to my conversation with Ash Dryden. Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom. I'm Aline Sims, your host, and today I am joined by Ash Dryden. Ash, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Um, so, who are you? <laughs> Great question. Uh, so, uh, I'm a programmer. I've been a programmer for about 13 years, uh, mostly in open source spaces. But what I've been focusing on uh, for the past two years is the lack of diversity in tech. So I travel around the world and speak at conferences and educate people about what diversity is, uh, how we're all involved in the problems that create a lack of diversity, uh, and the kinds of things that we can do to change that. In addition, I write, I speak a lot on Twitter, and I'm organizing a set of events that hopes to move these discussions beyond a diversity 101 uh, level type thing. Oh, neat. Um, well, so let me tell you a little bit about the podcast. Um, where I got the idea to start this to further the conversation about equality and underrepresented groups in tech and kind of, you know, like geeky industries in general, video gaming, science fiction, fantasy authors, that kind of thing. And one thing we've, I've talked a lot well, this is episode six, so maybe a lot is an exaggeration, but we've talked to activists, but a lot of us don't really have ideas for like concrete ideas for making things better for marginalized people. Um, so when you go to give these talks, what kind of things do you suggest that that people do to improve things? Sure. The biggest thing that each of us can do as individuals, no matter uh, the, the group that you fit into, because there are always going to be people uh, that are at a disadvantage to the position that you're in. The biggest thing that we can do is educate ourselves. What kinds of things are we not seeing because we have a privilege that uh, keeps us from realizing that that's something that we're kind of given for free? And if you're not familiar, not familiar, a privilege is some an unearned advantage that we get. Uh, for being born who we are or where we are or 
you know, because of the country that we're born in, um, all of those different kinds of things um, give us privileges. Um, so being aware that those things are in play and understanding what kinds of dynamics uh, privilege us above other people and then working um, to change our language, to change our attitudes, to understand where other people are coming from and other people's lived experiences can really help to change the temperature that we have in each of these communities. So a willingness to listen to what people are saying is really like step zero, isn't it? Absolutely. Because, I, I mean, the, the conversation doesn't go anywhere if if you, you know, don't don't include the ability to actually take in what people are saying and critically look at the kinds of actions that you take. I mean, and it's a really tough thing to to look at the things that you say or the things that you engage in and realize I might be hurting people with what I'm doing. I mean, it's it's something that, like I said, I've been doing this pretty much full time for the past two years. And I am confronted with the fact that I do things poorly and, you know, I have hurt people um, and probably will continue to hurt people because I don't realize the full extent to my privilege all the time. So kind of coming to terms with that and realizing that it doesn't make me a bad person, but the best thing that I can do is educate myself and do what I can to uh, make myself better. So how do you suggest that people deal with the people who, with those who are closed to listening. I mean, there are so many people who are in the workplace who are being, you know, harassed or, or belittled and they feel powerless. Do you have any suggestions for what they can do to kind of empower themselves? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. Uh, I mean, because you can't change anyone else. You can give them all of the information that they need to make an informed decision, but you can't force anybody to change their mind. So the best thing that you can do for yourself, especially as somebody who's in a position where you're being mistreated, where you're, um, you know, not, not being compensated fairly, you're, um, you know, there's a lot of subtle stuff at play that that people that aren't in your situation have a very hard time recognizing is to find people who understand where you're coming from. I think that the biggest thing for me has been finding other people that are like me that understand the dynamics at play that or, or that want to start to understand the dynamics at play here um, so that I feel like there's nothing wrong with me. Like the, the system that we're in is not okay and it should change. Um, and just because I am in a very small group or sometimes not in a small group doesn't mean that my needs or my desires or my safety or anything related to that is less important. And how do you, I'm sure that you have employers coming to you asking how to make the workplace better for their for everybody, right? So what is your suggestion to employers who want to start taking steps? Yeah, there's a lot of things that can be done. I actually work a lot with companies, big and small, to start looking at the lack of diversity that they have internally. Either um, they're seeing a lot of people from marginalized groups leave, or they're not getting um, new people to apply. Uh, their user base um, doesn't consist of a diverse set and they're trying to increase that. 
So it's the same kind of thing, taking a look at your marketing, taking a look at the culture that you have internally, the, the kinds of jokes that are acceptable, the kinds of uh, policies that are in place, how people are promoted, if that kind of thing is visible and achievable by all people. Um, but also understanding that there's so much subtle stuff that is very hard to see on your own. And sometimes it takes having somebody who's not close to the situation to be able to step back and say, hey, you have some problems right here, you know, or five of your employees are all reporting that there's one person who works in their department that makes them really uncomfortable. And they're your best performer, I understand, but if they don't change, if that, you know, the problematic person doesn't change, then you're going to lose a lot of employees. You're going to suffer from lower morale. You're going to be far less likely to hire, you know, uh, skilled, competent people. So you might have to make a tough decision to let, let your best programmer go, you know, let, let, you know, this person just leave your organization so you can be better. Wow. And that's a hard, that's a hard sell for a lot of companies, I think. It is. I mean, especially if that employee was hard won, a lot of people are, a lot of companies are, are willing to let a lot slide when it's somebody that uh, is, you know, famous in the community. So the company kind of gets um, some of the benefit from them listing, you know, that they work at this company in their Twitter profile, right? So it, it, it's hard, but you have to decide what's important to you. Uh, do you want to create an atmosphere where anybody can work, anyone can succeed, anyone can feel comfortable and safe, or do you want your company to be populated with people like somebody that is, you know, willing to hurt people and, you know, not do anything about it? Um, and you are absolutely empowered to do that as somebody who runs a company, as a manager, as somebody who has seniority. Um, it's much harder for marginalized people, for entry-level people. So. Uh, it's it's something that you're empowered to do, and I I feel it's that you're it's your responsibility. So let's talk about. I, I'm really interested in talking about how you, um, I guess, earn your income because you've you've crowdsourced a lot of it, right? Yep. So can you talk a little bit about your experience doing that? Because I I, I think it's really interesting that you are basically employed by the internet like you have people donating i don't know everything from a dollar to you know more so what's your experience been with with that sure it's it's been really interesting and really um what's the word that i want to use here it's i feel very honored uh that that people appreciate my work enough to compensate me for it. So like you said, I, I'm basically employed by a bunch of people on the internet. I don't have one boss, you know, the community of people around me are my boss, you know, so um, I'm doing for them instead of doing for a company which has different needs and goals than individuals in a community, which is a really great place to be in. So I'm actually working directly for the people who I'm hoping to help. Um, and it's, it's been a really long road to get to where I am now. Uh, like I said, I've been a programmer for a really long time and I, uh, I was a, a programming, programming consultant for years and years and years. And then I started doing more of this work and realized it was encroaching into my billing time. So it was actually hurting my business. So I had to figure out a way to be able to do something that I was really passionate about while still being able to, you know, buy cat food every week. So... <laughs> 
Um, so I started um, using a microfunding site um, and people, like you said, would give as little as 25 cents a week up to, you know, $100 a week uh, to support my work. And through hundreds of people doing that, I actually have a very stable, livable wage. Um, so I don't have to rely on, you know, working at a company where I would have very limited impact um, and having to worry about uh, being able to critically discuss something that that company did that's wrong. That way others can learn from it, which, you know, in a company is not politically productive. <laughs> so, so being on the outside enables me to look at everything without having uh, my, my lens is tinted by, uh, by, you know, whoever is employing me, which is really great, but also means that my risk is spread out over a much greater pool. So there are things that I talk about that people disagree with, and I definitely see my funding go down and that's perfectly fine. People aren't required to fund me for any specific amount of time. People aren't required to agree with every single thing that I say. Um, but because of that, you know, if, if I know that something I'm going to say needs to be said, but is going to be unpopular, it doesn't mean that um, I'm going to lose all of my income. So that really helps from a personal level, that really helps me a lot. And it enables me to help fund other projects that other marginalized people are working on in tech and gaming and other social justice areas um, where I didn't necessarily have the extra income to do that before. Um, so that's a nice thing to do. And like I said, I'm putting uh, together this event series, um, again, that is helped a lot by people who uh, want to um, see my work happen and want to see more different kinds of people have their voices heard as well. So let's talk about this event series. What, what are you planning on doing? Sure. So uh, it's a traveling event series, which is the first kind series of this kind that I've ever tried. I've organized a lot of uh, conferences and other events before, but I've never done a traveling event series. Um, so they're called the Alter Comp Sessions, and it's a series of two to three hour events taking place in large cities across the U.S. at first. Um, we're starting off in Boston and New York City this fall um, that is bringing together a bunch of marginalized people to talk about diversity in tech and gaming. And we're specifically asking people to move beyond the diversity 101 discussions and talk about uh, their experiences, um, critically analyzing culture um, and, and the kinds of things that they see in play, but also what the future of tech and gaming could look like. Um, are, were we able to get beyond these diversity 101 discussions and feel like we're more fully integrated into these communities? Um, so it's, it's a project that I'm really passionate about because so many of these kinds of events take place in San Francisco, which is great. Um, San Francisco definitely needs them, uh, but San Francisco isn't the only place. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, not everything happens in San Francisco. So there are a lot of people that don't have the opportunity to go there, but also there are people that are doing amazing work all over the country that aren't getting the kind of airtime that they should. So I want to show people what's happening in their backyard. These are hyper-local events. The speakers will be from the local area. The attendees are from the local area. So you can see what kinds of things you can be supporting, um, who you can be championing, who you can be championing, and um, what kinds of things you can get involved with um, to, to help make a difference in your own backyard instead of you know something that's hundreds of miles away. 
That sounds really, really fun and really interesting. Um, so you've got Boston, New York. How many cities do you have lined up so far? So those two are the one that we, the the two that we have scheduled right now. But we're hoping to kind of reach out all over the place um, in the near future. In the coming probably year, we're hoping to do. Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Detroit, Minneapolis, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Austin. Uh, and they're on uh, New Orleans, too. Um, and then potentially Toronto. Um, so it just, it, it really depends on the kind of support that um, the local area um, shows because we need venues and we need um, enough speakers and attendees for each of these events. So um, we're hoping that Boston and New York City, since they're such big areas and I have a lot of network there, um, that we can kind of work off the momentum of these two and, and, and that kind of thing. So so how can people get, get involved in their area or in helping to bring this series to their area? Sure. So right now we're putting together uh, the site and the branding for AlterConf, and uh, that will have all of the information um, once that's up. But in the meantime, you can either go to my website, ashdryden.com, or you can email me ashdryden at gmail.com. So what what besides, um, you know, kind of doing these diversity trainings, speaking up for marginalized people and in the AlterConf, what else um, are you kind of doing professionally right now? Can you talk about anything else or is that the main thrust of your time? So that's that's what I'm spending the majority of my time on. I do a lot of consulting with businesses and conferences to increase uh, diversity and inclusion there. I'm also hoping to finish up a book this summer about um, how companies can um, better integrate diversity into their companies. Um, because a lot of companies, I think, do want to see things change. They just don't know what the first steps to take. They don't have the experience. They don't have the vocabulary. Um, and they're very afraid to make mistakes. So it's, it, it's kind of giving them the information that they need to make informed decisions um, and, and hopefully the right decisions the first time. Um, so that's kind of the majority of what I'm working on. Um, otherwise, it's just a lot of discussion, doing a lot of um, writing. I speak a lot about... Um, current events, like this morning, I've, I've been talking about um, Google's uh, new preferential treatment for sites with SSL and how that privileges people with the knowledge of what SSL is, the ability to apply it to a website, and the money to be able to purchase an SSL certificate. Um, because all of those things kind of impact, you know, uh, a lot of people outside of tech that we don't think about. So I'm having a lot of discussions about. Uh, classism and, and that kind of thing, uh, access to the internet. And I don't, until you just spoke about it, that's not even something I would consider um, something that needed to be thought about is how does SSL affect different people and being able to to apply it and, and all of that. That's really interesting <laughs> like it makes me th- it makes me wonder what what else i miss every day that you know is because of my privilege and and that's totally what i'm saying like that happens to me all the time where i'm just like ah, that is a perspective i never thought of so a, a lot of these conversations um you know that i have that other people have um i'm, I'm hoping that more people get involved with them and, and read more because it's really hard to realize when 
um, you know, you, you're always looking at the world from your perspective, from your experience. And that's not different than the way that anybody else does it. But because we have so much privilege, because we have this knowledge, we have this access, we have uh, the money to be able to do all these things, and we're exerting our will over the internet, we're changing how the internet works, who has access to it, who's businesses um, you know, are pushed up in search rankings. We need to understand how that affects people without the same privilege that we have. And that's, that's kind of our, our burden as privileged people to understand better how our privilege uh, affects our decisions, how, how our decisions affect other people. So what resources are there for people like me who are like, oh my gosh, SSL has like these really broad implications. Where, where can we learn more about these things that we, we don't, we don't hear about every day because I don't, you know, I'm pretty involved in, you know, the tech side and the security side of things, but I'd never, never considered this before. So how can I, how can I learn more? Sure. Uh, there are a lot of places that I read things. Uh, if you're not familiar with Model View Culture, which is a uh, an online magazine run by Shanley Kane that I highly recommend um, that critically analyzes uh, tech culture, gaming culture, a lot of online anything um, in different aspects of identity. So gender and race and um, country of origin and language and sexuality, all these different kinds of things. So that's a really great place. Um, I regularly read a website called Color Lines that is a news site that um, that looks at the racial implications of laws that are being made or um, current events that are happening and, and that kind of thing. Um, but other than that, for me, following a lot of people on Twitter that talk about things critically and have a different perspective from me, whether it's their own personal perspective or an education that they have in philosophy or humanities or whatever, that um, gives them kind of that critical eye to think about things, feminism, social justice, has all been really great for me to learn this stuff. If you go on Twitter, uh, there's a, a user, uh, Karanda, who is an amazing person. Her Twitter handle is spelled K-R-O-N-D-A, and she has a Twitter list full of people that she recommends um, that people in tech follow specifically for these kinds of discussions. So that's a really great place to start. Um, and. You know, I tell people, you know, just see where it takes you, you know, uh, you know, try following, you know, somebody and see all the people that they retweet and, you know, look at their timelines and see what kinds of articles that they're sharing and discussions they're having, because that has opened up an entire new world to me uh, that I, you know, didn't realize existed. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. So I've kind of come into the space pretty recently um, based on an event that happened in my workplace. And I was like, wait a second, this isn't just happening to me, you know, because I felt really safe where I was before. And so I've kind of slowly been doing the Twitter thing where, you know, I'll follow one person and then I'm seeing what they're retweeting. And then I go and I look and, I'm, oh, okay, this is really interesting. So I start following that person. And um, it's been so enlightening just I mean just over the last six months or so and um I just I think what an awesome tool Twitter can be for for us is we're both learning and speaking out on these issues yeah absolutely and I mean I learn new things every day you know there there's never a point where you're like okay I've learned it all I am done you know I have all of the knowledge in my head it just it doesn't work that way you know the 
the different voices that are um, that are being heard, the different perspectives, um, and the way that people are looking at things um, changes all the time. So being involved in that kind of thing, and, and especially, I mean, tech tech has been an interest of mine for a really long time, obviously, as a programmer for so long. And these discussions are happening in these spaces. You know, like I said, you know, this morning talking about SSL, you know, those those are things that affect us that, you know, we make decisions about. Um, and this, you know, intersects very well with this idea of social justice and, and how, you know, it impacts people that aren't us. So I think we all know there are problems, right? So we identify problems every day and solutions are the hard, the hard thing, you know, because even when, so my experience of being, you know, kind of belittled and harassed in the workplace was I went to, you know, president of the company and was like, Hey, there's this thing happening. And he just kind of nodded. He looked appropriately appalled, but nothing was ever done about it. And in fact, I found out that the person who was, behaving um, in this marginalizing way is actually kind of being promoted in the company. And so so I, I'm very interested in solutions, but it's such a hard it's such a hard thing because like you said, you have to start with the openness and the the willingness to actually one listen and then two act. And I wish there was a way I could make people do that. If there's anything that I have learned over the past couple of years is that you can't help everyone. They, you know, they, there are going to be people who fight you tooth and nail that will never change their minds. And there's, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's not worth your time and your energy to try and make them change their minds. So it's best, like I tell people, block and move on. <laughs> like there are other things that you could be, you know, spending your energy on, um, and and you know, it's it's a very hard lesson to learn, and it's something I still struggle with every single day, and it's it's so hard. I mean, I I have a hard time dealing with the fact every day that in tech, especially, we're such we want to say that we're such logic driven people. You know, show us the data and then we'll make an informed decision. And there is so much data supporting the lack of diversity in tech, why people are leaving, why people aren't getting into the industry, the kinds of harassment and assaults that are happening in the industry. And people just look at it and they're like, but that's not enough, or you know, that's, that's so rare. And you're like, it's not. Like there, there is 20, 30, 40 years of data, of evidence showing that this is a huge problem from countries all over the world. You know, this isn't just the United States. And people don't want to believe it. So in the face of all of this data, they still don't want to change their minds. And there's only so much you can do about that. You know, I can only phrase it in so many different ways. I can only wrap it in so many different color bows. Um, and, it, you know, eventually we have to get to the point where we tell people, look, if you want to believe that, that's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but there's nothing I can do about it. We're moving on without you, right? You know, like we are pushing forward. We cannot wait for every single person to get on the bus. Yeah. You know, I was reading, um, I was reading the comments, which <laughs> is like, 
no, no, number one, right? right? But so I was reading the comments of, of an article on Macworld yesterday um, that I talk about Brianna Wu a lot um, because she's been really especially vocal in the last you know couple of months, I, I think, or at least more highlighted in the last couple of months. But she wrote this article for Macworld um, about how Apple does not have a lot of diversity. And, you know, you watch the the keynotes and all of that and there are no women on stage and um and so she was kind of addressing that and and people there are these comments like well have you ever stopped to consider that the reason women aren't entering the tech industry is because they're just not interested and i was just like yeah that's that's it it's not because tech has a cultural problem or that our you know society has a larger problem it's just because girls aren't interested and I was so livid. I was so angry. <laughs> and the worst part is like, that is such an often repeated excuse. Like anything that doesn't make me culpable for this problem, right? So people will say that to me, well, maybe women and people of color and all of these other groups, maybe they're just not interested or maybe, you know, their brains aren't analytical enough to understand these things. And I look at them and I say, do you, do you know what the history of computing is? Like, do you realize that we invented this? Like we wrote the first compiler, we wrote the first programming language, we were involved in um, creating the first personal computer. Like computing would not be what it is today without the various marginalized groups that you think have no interest in this. You think that we are just not good enough at this and it's not the fact that we face being sexually assaulted, being denigrated on stage, people mocking us, threatening us on the internet. Like what? <laughs> like I, there's no, there's no, not even any logic to that, but it's, I mean, I, trying to look at it from their perspective, it's like I said, it's very hard to believe that we may have had a role in creating the situation or perpetuating it. So anything that makes it somebody else's fault means that I am absolved of any blame. And I don't have to do anything. Exactly. And, and so in, from that perspective, I can understand. I don't accept it, but I understand it. Um, and it's so hard, especially when, you know, I get emails from people who've been sexually assaulted at conferences and have gotten fired from their jobs because they reported it. Like, I, I, it's so hard for me to empathize with people when that's the kind of stuff that is happening in our, you know, supposedly safe, friendly, welcoming spaces every single day. It is so difficult for me. And it's so difficult for me to have patience to, you know, to sit and kindly explain to someone that no, it's not just that we're not interested in computing or we're not interested in video games or, you know, science fiction fantasy or whatever it is. It's so difficult because it's, it's my own personal experience that I've had so many, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of great things happen to me because of the communities and I've made a lot of really great friends, but I've also had a really, a, a lot of really terrible experiences that less marginalized people, more privileged people will never have to experience. And that's not acceptable. So what's the greatest victory you've had while you've been doing this work? I think the fact that people expect to have to, to be confronted with these discussions, you know, no more can people put together a conference with an all white male lineup and expect and not expect people to say something. I think that because it's become part of the greater conversation, it started to change things. You know, I, 
I don't mind if people are a little bit afraid of bad publicity um, to if, the, if that's what it takes for them to change things. You know, I can't change everybody's hearts and minds, but, you know, I can vote with my feet and I can vote with my dollar. Um, and that's what I've got. You know, we have been in this situation for so long that, you know, either you're, you know, you join with us or, you know, you're going to realize, you know, what it, what it's like to be in our position. And it's, it's been great to see the number of people that, you know, will tell conferences, sorry, your all your conference is so homogenous. I, I won't accept speaking there or, um, the conversation that was started about, um, codes of conduct by the ADA initiative. I've been really happy to see that that has proliferated so much uh, through the industry where, you know, it's almost a requirement that conferences now have codes of conduct, that attendees, before they buy tickets, that's what they look for. So those are those are small victories. It's, it's pushing us in the right direction. There are still issues with each of those things, but it's progress. And that's, you know, it, and when you're in this line of business, like any progress is, is a victory. You'll take an inch. I will take anything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, and I think that's, that's something that I've even noticed more and more. um, I'm not really a big, I don't go to conferences, but something that I, that I have noticed is what you're speaking to. Like um, uh, John Scalzi is a science fiction writer who I follow not very closely, but I, you know, kind of follow loosely and he's one very vocal person for um for i will not go to this conference unless you have a code of conduct you know john john scalzi's got an audience that you and i will never have right right and so it's nice to to see you know people speaking up and um like the the gentleman who put on singleton in um, montreal every year I know that they deliberated very carefully about what their code of conduct would say because they wanted to get it just right. And, you know, it's it sucks that we have to have those, but I'm glad that the conference organizers are recognizing it. And I'm glad that people are saying, I'm not going to go on this panel unless, you know, it's not everybody who looks like me. And um, I think it's a good step is not ideal, but it's, it's a good place to start. Yeah. Progress. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I've tried to give myself some perspective about how slow changes by reading a lot of things about the civil rights movement, about, you know, different, um, um, you know, women's suffrage movements all over the country and, and all of these different kinds of things to encourage change in a group of people that benefits from things not changing. And it's so slow. I mean, it's, it's almost imperceptible how slow the change is. And that can be really demoralizing. I mean, it's something that I face all the time. I know a lot of other people who do, um, you know, similar kinds of activism and advocacy that they face all the time because you feel like I am, you know, I'm dealing with people angry all the time. Like I joke all the time, like I'm making friends on the internet today, you know, like I'm used to having unpopular opinions and it's hard to always have to be that woman. You know, it's, it's hard to deal with the fact that Random strangers, people I've never talked to, have never met, think that I'm a terrible person, think that I'm mean, you know, think that, uh, you know, a a lot of terrible things about me um, because I want to see people treated fairly and people safe and welcome 
and you know included in what they shouldn't have to fight for you know and and it's it's a very difficult thing but you know i'm not the first person to go through this i won't be the last person to go through this i don't expect that my being involved in uh, you know in tech and gaming in this way will make a big enough change that this will be fixed by the time i retire you know i'm i'm very aware of how slow changes and part of that is, is kind of calming. Like I, I tell people, it's kind of like being on a software project that you know will never launch. You know, I have to have that drive, even though I know this won't be fixed in my lifetime. And I think I think that's true to a point. But, you know, sometimes I stop and think about, you know, just in U.S. history, women have only had the vote for not even 100 years yet. You know, like, Yep. And I mean, and women of color are still prevented from voting today, right? <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, in in some ways, when you think about it in a span of a lifetime, it is slow. It is incremental. It is, you know, an inch at a time. But when you when we think about like in the history of our country, it's really not. And and that kind of helps me, too, because because I can notice things getting better. I can notice, oh, hey, this conference has has a non-harassment policy now. Okay, cool. Whereas, you know, in the past, it's just kind of because, you know, the technology didn't exist and all of that. But it was just kind of this, this steady state forever, you know. And so, I don't know, sometimes that kind of helps me too. Like, at least I can notice the little things. Because I know that that one little thing is going to stack on top of another little thing, and eventually we're going to have a big thing here. And I might not see, you know, total acceptance, total acceptance and total inclusion, but at least I'm going to be able to see some of that pile. Yeah, and it, I mean it's it's hard um, for me a lot of times because I think about the number of people that are going to be hurt in the meantime, the number of people who are going to have to leave industries and, and get, you know, completely different careers because this continues to be the same way. You know, I think about all of the marginalized people that are coming into these industries now, you know, excited and, and loving what they do, and they're going to have the life sucked out of them, you know, by this kind of stuff. And it's, it, it's really hard to deal with. And, and the best thing that we can do is to keep having these conversations to, keep pushing for change to, um, you know, to, to be the one with the unpopular opinion sometimes, <laughs> or a lot of times, you know, it's what it takes. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's so sad because, um, again, going back to Brianna, I talked to her for my first interview was with her and she has a pretty much all female development game development studio. Um, with the exception of her husband has done some part-time work, um, like helping design the ships and in, in the game. And, I was saying, oh, I think it's really cool that you have an all-female crew. And she said, well, yeah, kind of, but men are important. Men offer another perspective, and men are 50% of the population too. And I need that differing perspective, and so I'm going to be hiring men. And I was like, oh, (laughs) yeah, you're right. But I, I think about it in terms of other cultures because, you know, I'm... I'm white. I grew up in the Western United States. There's not a lot of diversity where I'm from. Um, there are there are so many cultures and so many ideas and so many concepts that 
I don't have and that I will maybe never encounter. And we're not even giving them those cultures a chance to penetrate kind of this, the monoculture that exists in, in tech because we're running these people off. And I think about how, how we're missing out. Like where would we be now if these people weren't pushed out? And that's, that's horrible. (laughs) You know, it it really is. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, and, uh, Definitely to Brianna's point, too, you know, there's a lot of differences about us that you can't see, you know, and that's a big part of diversity, too. So being aware of the way that class plays in, that, uh, you know, mental health plays in, that, you know, people with chronic illnesses, you know, all of these things that we don't think about on a daily basis. And, you know, personally, as an American that are, you know, not part of our regular discussions, especially when it comes to things like class, Um, because we believe so much in this American ideal, you know, this American dream that anybody can, you know, come from nothing and become the president of the United States, you know, and we know that that's not true, (laughs) but, but that's something that, you know, is so pervasive in our culture. So, well, and it sounds so good in theory. It does. It it really does. And I mean, and that's, you know, the root of what we see in meritocracy, right? That, you know, as long as you are good enough at what you do, you will be recognized and you will be rewarded. And that's not the case. I mean, still one of my most popular blog posts that I wrote is um, the ethics of um, open source and unpaid labor. And I get a lot of people really upset about that post talking about how we have an entire industry, open source software, that profits off of unpaid labor of people that we promote and hire people who are who are able to do unpaid labor you know people who don't have children who don't have um you know other health care needs who don't have to have a second job because you know they don't have the money to do whatever um you know there are a lot of different ways that that impacts us but we're using that as a hiring metric meanwhile industries are making tons of money off of open source software. So the money is there. We're just not actually giving it to the people. But a lot of people feel like bringing money into this arrangement would sully it, you know? So it's it's a really tough uh, it's a really tough discussion to have because it's it's a huge ideal ideological stumbling block for people. You know, it's so ingrained in people through open source culture that I would never take money you know, it's, it's beautiful and pure and clean without money. And meanwhile, the companies that they work for are making tons of money off of it. You know, other companies in the industry are making tons of money off of it. We're only hiring and promoting people who have the time and the resources to contribute hours and hours and hours of unpaid labor to, towards open source software. So there's a huge ethical problem in there. But Ethics isn't something that we really talk about very often, especially in tech. You know, we don't talk about what it means for me to have a $2,000 laptop when there's a woman in China that's working for who knows how little every day in a, in a dirty factory, you know, for however many hours a day in unsafe conditions. And she might never escape that life, you know, all for me to have a nice laptop. You know, we have to understand how we fit into the world, how we fit into society, how we fit into culture within our industry and all of the different levels of that and, and, and what that looks like on every person's face. And that, that's so, it's so hard 
you know, and, and you can't, so, so something I've talked about a little bit is like, you can't, you can't care about everything. You can't take everything on. Um, but you still need to be aware, I think of, of what's happening and, and where you fit in, because if you're ignorant to that, then it just, it doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of us have the privilege of choice. You know, we have the ability to choose what we spend our money on, where we live, where we work, um, what, you know, companies we do business with. We have that privilege. We don't see it often as a privilege, but we are able to make a choice and making an informed decision about where your money is going, where your time is going, um, where your efforts are going is extremely important in the grand scheme of things and, and how, you know, you know, regardless of, you know, my personal beliefs, I still bought a computer that, you know, like I said, a woman wasn't, or anybody is in a very unsafe, you know, atmosphere creating, right? So my intent, you know, to spend money on something that, you know, isn't going to harm a ton of people doesn't help that person. It still harmed them. Then I have to come to terms with that. You know, I don't exist outside the system any more than that factory worker does, but I can work with companies who have better ethics. I can purchase from companies who have stricter guidelines for labor and payment and healthcare and that kind of thing. Those are choices that I can make. Um, and that's something that we should be doing. It's hard, but you know, we make a lot of hard decisions every single day, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, we absolutely do. Absolutely. So I grew up, you know, rural Southwest, um, Southwestern United States and everybody is low income. And so it's been really interesting to me as I've left that area and gone to college and kind of improved my own socioeconomic status by, you know, getting my college education and, and honestly working in the tech industry has probably helped with that a lot. And, and what a, a difference in perspective I have, you know, now versus 10 years ago where, where I grew up, it was, you know, you, you go to work, you do your job, you probably don't like it, but you're hopefully paying the mortgage and getting food on the table to this um, industry where people are like, all right, you don't like your job, leave it and something's going to catch you. And I think about that a lot about how, how privileged that is, how, I mean, on the one hand, how empowering it is to be able to say that. And on the other hand, how arrogant it is to say that and, um, you know, kind of trying to reconcile that with my own childhood and my own my own up- upbringing where it's like you just slog through until hopefully you can retire. Um, and then trying to make that fit in with, you know, the Chinese factory workers and how they really don't have options. You know, they're they're grateful for those jobs. They stand in line for 12 hours to get a job, you know. And sometimes it's really overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard because like I said, none of us exist outside the system. You know, you still have to pay your bills. You still have to buy groceries. So it's 
not as if you can opt out and say, I'm not going to participate in the system that, you know, privileges me over other people and means that, uh, you know, I make money off of a lot of other people's unpaid labor, you know, or, or underpaid labor. Um, you know, you still have to participate in this, you know, there's, there's no outside of it. Um, and it's, it sucks. And it, I mean, there's a lot of um, moral conflict that goes on there for sure. I totally understand that. Um, I kind of grew up in, in similar circumstances where I have not had heat in the winter. I have not had food, you know, I've been near homeless, but that's given me the perspective to understand that a lot of what I have today is through a mix of privilege and people around me who are privileged who are able to help me. And there are a lot of people who don't have those safety nets. You know, there are a lot of people that, you know, I've worked, I've worked, you know, two minimum wage jobs at a time before and, you know, 18 hours a day back to back. Um, and it's, it sucks. And for a lot of people, the vast majority of people in this country, that's what their lives are going to work every single day, not liking it, but you know, this is something that I have to do in the same way that I have to take out my garbage and it's a paycheck. And we are so lucky to be able to have that choice, to be able to say that I enjoy my job or be able to say things like we'll only hire people that are passionate about what they do. Like nobody, nobody is passionate about changing oil in a car. You know, nobody is passionate about, you know, janitorial work. Um, what, what gives us the right to say we'll only hire people if they're passionate? Um, so there are a lot of things that we can do to change the not only the way that this industry works, but how our industry interacts with other ones. You know, there's been a lot of discussion relatively recently about, you know, a lot of the industries that are supported by the tech industry or that are harmed by them. So if you look at, you know, security services that are offered to places like Google or the people who have to drive those buses that people protest outside of all the time that the Google workers, you know, uh, that the Google workers ride on every day. You know, those, those are people that, it's extra stress on their lives. You know, they, they can't live in the same neighborhoods that, you know, people who work at Google do. You know, they're, they're contractors, they're, you know, not full employees, they don't get the same kinds of benefits, they don't get near the pay, um, but they're able to get basically some of the runoff from the tech industry. And so when we're looking at the way that we do business, looking at the way that we impact other industries is extremely important. Uh, somebody said, I'm, I'm sorry that I don't remember who, but somebody said um, yesterday that um, disruption is only disruption when it takes into account uh, the, the weakest among us. So if the only people that you're disrupting are people that are more likely to be unemployed, are more likely to live in low-income housing, are more likely to be unable to go to a doctor. Like, is that really disruption? Are you, are you making things better? You know, is, is this, you know, a, a positive change that you've created? And that's been a lot of the discussion that we see around things like Uber that are, you know, quote unquote, disrupting, you know, the taxi industry. And a lot of people spend a lot of money on taxi medallions. You know, they're uh, independently employed basically, and they'll work tons of hours a day to be able to get the same wages that an Uber person will get in far fewer hours and the Uber people are charging less. So it's negatively impacting people that it shouldn't. 
You know, somebody somebody made a joke about the same thing, saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was like an Uber that was a larger vehicle and it had a predestined route through neighborhoods? <laughs> like, yeah, like we're not supporting public transit. You know, we're you know, in, when I lived in Milwaukee, a lot of the people, or I don't want to say a lot of people, many people who took public transit were low income. There were a lot of people, a lot of homeless people or people that um, were, what is the word, um, like home insecure, where they were traveling between different places where they could stay, different shelters, uh, food banks, that kind of thing. And, or, or just kids, you know, that they, that their parents were able to get them into a school that was outside of their neighborhood and, you know, a safer, you know, higher quality school. And now their eight-year-old has to take the city bus by themselves across town. So by us removing funding from those kinds of things, um, and especially when you look at how rich our industry is and, and how we are lobbying to change, I, mean, I, I don't want to say we, um, the United States is lobbying to change a lot of the ways that we fund things. And if you look at, you know, Facebook has um, put a lot of money behind a lot of um, initiatives like immigration, um, you know, we have the power to change these things. You know, when money equals a vote, the, the most wealthy are the powerful ones and we have the money. So let's actually do something good with it. You know, if we can't both be upset about the 1% and at the same time be stepping on everybody on the way up to the 1%, you know, we need to, we need to be responsible for where we came from and what the world we want to see is going to look like. So I got really philosophical there for a minute. But it, it's, it's true. And, you know, we, we're hearing about, or at least I'm hearing more about, you know, the, the middle class is ceasing to exist. We've got, you know, we've got the upper class and we've got the lower class and the middle class is just kind of dwindling away. And um, we really need to think about what the impact of that is, both for us and elsewhere, I mean, we're such a global economy now, you know, 200 years ago, this wasn't wasn't an issue as, as much, but we're a world leader, our, our country is a world leader, and we're kind of collapsing in on ourselves, but we still need, we still need to take all of this into consideration, and I don't, I don't know that we think about it. We're so involved in the day-to-day of our own lives. And, you know, we just, we just do. Yeah. And I mean, we do what we can to avoid seeing those problems. You know, it's, it's distressing to realize that there are people who have less, who can do less, whose life expectancies are way lower in the United States because of the kinds of systems that we live in and perpetuate and benefit from. It's a really hard thing to deal with. Um, But that distress that we feel is nothing compared with being the person who has to deal with that every single day. You know, you you were talking about class and like when you're working class or poor, everything is upper class. You know, the distinction matters so much less because that's all stuff that is unattainable to you. That's access that you will never have. You know, we know that in the United States that the class you are born into is likely the class that your children will be born into and that you and your children will die in. There is very little upward mobility. There's very little of that, even though 
the conversation that we have around class and the American dream, like I said before, is that that is all that there is. You know, all it takes is elbow grease and, you know, you can be the CEO of GM. And that's not the case. And we need to confront that falsehood and deal with it. You know, we need to understand that requiring people to have college degrees in an economy where people are lucky, people are lucky if they can get 20 hours a week at McDonald's is ridiculous. You know, when, when colleges are charging more and more and more, there's so much that's going on. There's so many different moving pieces here that I just finished, um, I run a feminist book club that talks a lot about, um, you know, different aspects of the social justice and that kind of thing. We just finished this book called Unequal Childhoods, uh, Race, Class, and Gender in America. And it discusses a lot of the ways that um, class is kind of self-perpetuating. You know, we, we keep people in these classes through the education that they're able to attain, you know, not just in like being able to go to college, but the, the quality of education that they get in elementary, middle school, and high school, the kinds of people that are advocating for them, the kinds of systems that are policing them and, and um, looking at them more critically, um, we, we keep people in these classes. You know, we, we keep this class system going. You know, I, I remember when I was in school, we talked a lot about the caste system in India, and I was mortified by that. And we have one in the United States, <laughs> you know, we, we have that. It is us and, and we are not morally superior to anyone. You know, we treat people terribly. We have people here who can't read. We have people here who have no choice but to steal so that they can make ends meet, so that they can eat. We have people who have to lie going into hospitals so they can get medical treatment. Like, what kind of best country in the world is that? Like, if we're the best country in the world, that kind of horrifies me. Um, there's a long way to go, you know, if, that, if we're the best country in the world. We have a lot of work to do, and we have so much ability to change the conversation. You know, there's um, so many of us that are have the ability to look at things critically and to question things. And, you know, we're a generation that has been brought up to question things, but we're just not questioning the right things. You know, we need to look at, you know, I'm, I'm so happy for you that you make $150,000, but because you make $150,000 a year, what does that mean to the people that are below you in the company? You know, if you took a 10% pay cut, that could mean a world of difference to somebody who's at the bottom. And we need, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so hard because people, um, like I said, don't want to believe that they're part of the system that's hurting people, but we're so obsessed with what's right in front of us and that's so much more important than anything else. And I don't know, my heart, I, I've, I've always been a kind of heartaches for other people kind of person. And it's so hard for me to see this kind of thing happen and people just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, that's just the way it is. Why does that have to be the way it is? We can change it. Right. Nothing we can do about it. Right, exactly. And the reality is, you know, we talk about having college educations. One of the things that I've really loved about, um, you know, Mike Rowe doing dirty jobs and watching that show, what that really helped me with was we need these people doing these dirty jobs. We, we, not everybody can go to college. Not everybody should go to college. We need someone to collect the garbage and, and do the plumbing and, and pave the roadways. And our society would crumble if we didn't have this, right? 
But that doesn't mean that they need to live so poorly because they're so important. Yeah. I mean, but also think about like we in tech, we're innovating in places that don't need much innovation. Like, unfortunately, that's just the way that it is. Like we are looking at the little tiny problems that we have that are inconveniences to us. And those are the things that we're fixing instead of looking at this from a different perspective. We have amassed so much wealth in this country. It's unequally distributed, but we have amassed a ton of wealth. We have the ability to change things in such a way that everybody can go to college, that we we could have people be in jobs that are fulfilling to them, that they enjoy, that pe- people can stay home with their children if they want. You know, people can take better care of themselves if they want. But when the only thing we're looking at is money, the only thing we're looking at is these very small problems in front of us, then we see people slotted into these, you know, class systems that, that keep them there. You know, we will never look at a doctor the same way as we look at a, uh, a garbage truck driver, right? But why? Like, w- without a garbage truck driver, the disease that would spread through cities is huge. A doctor could not keep up with that. Why is a garbage truck driver's job less important than a doctor? Because we value it differently. So if we thought about these problems from a different perspective, if we looked at solutions to problems in different areas, we could see every person in our society be able to live the life that they want to live, where they could be happy, they could be healthy, they could have access to education if they want it, um, you know, access to, you know, whatever kind of job, if they want one that, you know, they find fulfilling. We have the ability to change these things, but we have to consider the fact that we can change them. And it seems impossible. It seems huge, but I wouldn't be working on this problem at all if I didn't think that, you know, there was some good in people that they had the ability to learn and change. You know, I, I didn't always believe the things that I believe now. There are a lot of things that I'm ashamed of that I've thought, that I felt, that I've done before. And I'm sure that there will be more in the future, you know, that, that I feel that way about myself now. So I, I believe that if I could go through that, you know, if, if I could make that kind of transformation, then everyone can. And it just takes stopping and thinking about somebody, I don't know, it sounds really terrible, but thinking about somebody other than yourself. But we don't. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> I, yeah, and and I th- I think that that's you know we're just wired to to do that. It's a survival thing. But but that's not where we are anymore. You know, we're we don't have to worry about the tiger attacking us or, or you know whatever. We're we're okay. We can we can devote some energy to outward thinking. Yep. I mean, this the survival mechanisms you know that we have now are. You know, I need to make enough money so that I can have a roof over my head, that I can feed my kids, that I can get the medicine that I need that, you know, keeps the cancer at bay. You know, those are the kinds of things. And we have the wealth in this country to be able to give everybody that. We have it, but we don't use it in that way. Um, so we wouldn't have to have those kind of survival worries. <clears throat> excuse me. We wouldn't have to have those kinds of survival worries if we weren't so obsessed with this like idea of amassing wealth and you know having a big bank account and having a nice house you know having a huge unruly house you know that's got you know 10 times more rooms than people who live in it you know we don't need that stuff but you know there's something about society egging us on 
um, this capitalist ideal that, you know, the more that, you know, we show that we have, the more prideful we are, you know, the, the, the more respect that people have towards us. Um, but only if you look and act and sound a certain way. <laughs> it's, it's not great. I mean, there's so many problems at every level of the system. And we just have to tackle the bit of the problem that we can reach. Um, but if more people are involved, that would mean change faster, more dramatic, um, and things could be better for everyone. And I think it's happening. I really do. I think more and more people are becoming aware and more and more people are kind of evaluating what they can do and starting to do that. Um, just, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, four, maybe four weeks that I've been airing this podcast, I've had emails from people who are like, yeah, I used to be part of the problem and I realized I was part of the problem. And I think that I think that's going to happen more and more. I really do. I hope so. I definitely do. (laughs) So, Ash, we're at about an hour now. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? I don't think so. I feel like we've covered a lot of awesome stuff. This, like, most of the time, like, I have to talk about, like, but why is assaulting a woman at a conference wrong? So this has been refreshing. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this a lot. You know, I'm like, I don't, I don't have the energy to explain to you why we have to have code of conduct again. Like, <laughs> read a thing, please. <laughs> so this has been really awesome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I'd really like to have you back on after you you do your little traveling conferences and um, hear about how that went and what 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 people learned. I think that'd be really neat. Yeah, for sure. Follow up with me in like six months. Okay. So Ash, how can people find you online? Sure. So I am Ash Dryden pretty much everywhere on the internet. Um, Ash is spelled A-S-H-E. Um, so ashdryden.com is my website where uh, all of my writing lives. Um, I'm Ash Dryden on Twitter, and if you need to get a hold of me for any reason, um, I'm at ashdryden at gmail.com. Cool. Ash, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Less Than or Equal. You can find us online at lessthanorequal.com or on Twitter at less than or equal. If you'd like to come on the show or have any ideas for guests I should interview, please drop me a line using the contact form on the website. Until next time. On an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.